following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Uh, good morning, and I really do hope you are doing well. Um, listen, I don't believe that our God makes mistakes. Amen. And because of that, I believe you are, and I are here for a reason. And I've just been praying that God would use this morning as we finish, we come together and we finish the book, the story of Ruth. Um, we get to the final chapter and we just see the way that our God works in just his perfect and good way. Um, but before we dive in, I want to give you a, a little bit of a heads up on, on where we are heading. So we started into Genesis, believe it or not, uh, about two years ago. And we've been walking ever so slowly through the book. Now, we've taken some breaks like the one we're on right now and Ruth, but we've come back and we've worked our way through what we have the final couple chapters left of Genesis ahead of us. And more specifically, we have the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph. Uh, And we get the great joy and privilege of looking at his story together. Joseph's story is a story of faith and purpose. It's a story that shows God's faithfulness in his plan even in what appears to be chaos. Even in what appears to be just, just how God could this happen. We see that not only is God good in the trials, he is sovereign over them. And we see he uses them all for his glory. And I cannot wait. Only our God and, and I'm hoping that you're going to be able to be a part of it with us as we journey through Joseph. Um, and, and I hope that you will be praying for who the Lord might have you invite to come and be a part of our journey through Joseph's story. Along with that, we had these printed. They're, they're scattered everywhere. We got so many of them. They're scattered everywhere. Um, And I'd love for you to take these with you. Take one, take two, take 10, take them with you and begin to pray for who the Lord might have you give them to and invite them to come. If maybe um, you have someone in your life who you've been thinking, you know, I should maybe invite them to join me. How about this? Use this and use me as your excuse. Just say, you know what, um, my pastor asked me to give this, and you came to my mind thinking about you. Use me as your excuse. Maybe, um, I was going to ask how many of you are pickpockets, but that's probably not something good to admit. I was going to say, maybe if you're good, you can just like slide them places, you know? Um, no, don't do that. Uh, unless you are good, then, then go for it. But grab... <laughs> Grab one, grab two, grab, grab as many as you need. I, I have one uh, on every chair, but we have, as you leave, um, we have several more. So we'd love for you to take one. Um, but we are so excited for where we are and how we're finishing Ruth's story. And I have one more quick thing before we pray and we get to work. Um, as I said, we have some of our elementary 
here, and we're so grateful for you, so glad you're, you're here, and um, this morning we're going to be looking at Ruth, right, and we're going to be talking about redemption, and uh, I love this because I found out that our kids, they've already walked through this and learned about redemption, which, um, listen, I just want to take a moment to say thank you, to say thank you for every single volunteer who gives of yourself um, to work with, to teach our kids, who teach our kids every week, week in and week out, teaching the next generation about the gospel and the hope we have in Jesus. I just want to say thank you. You know this, but what you are doing has an eternal value that you and I can't even comprehend. And I want to thank you for all that you do. Personally, I'm speaking not as a pastor here, but as a dad. I want to say thank you. I love that my kids, are, my boys are growing up in your ministry here. And I want to say thank you. And I want to encourage you to keep up the good work. Keep up the good work. So as we, with that all being said, um, I want us to turn our hearts now to our text in Ruth, and I want to ask you, if you would, if you would join me in prayer, let's ask that the Lord would speak through his word and speak through our time. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this privilege to come together with your people. We thank you for what you are doing in our church. We thank you for what you are doing in our lives. We thank you the way that you move in our kids and our kids' ministry and the way you're moving here right now. Lord, would you take this time, would you speak through your word as you have promised to do? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, here's what I'd like to do. We are um, coming to the end of the book of, of Ruth, and we've walked through it in four weeks. We've taken a chapter a week, um, which, which is great, but one of the difficulties of doing this, Ruth is not four stories. Ruth is one story, not four, one. But when we take it week by week, sometimes we can, we can not see how this story's unfolding and building and how the plot and the characters are building and unfolding. And when you break up a good book, sometimes you can really see the parts but maybe miss the whole. And it's like if we were coming together to watch a movie slowly but surely. I mean, it would be weird, right? Um, but you want to see the grand story to see how the parts make up the whole and see the plot. And well, this morning, we're basically looking at the end of a movie. We're looking at the end of a story. So what I'd like for us to do before we get into chapter four is, is see where we have been. And would you take a journey with me through Ruth here for a real quick moment, I promise. Our story, though, begins with tragedy. This family is hit with just tragedy. This woman named Naomi loses her husband. And shortly after then, loses her two grown sons. She loses everything. This is his tragedy. She loses the ones who she loves. But more than that... um, In the process, she also suffers an incredible um, financial loss because now she's incredibly vulnerable 
She is, um, she is destitute. She is alone. Again, this is, this is, I like to think about Ruth sometimes as the female version of Job, or think about Naomi, actually. It's kind of the female Job. She lost, she loses everything, and you know, chapter one ends in this powerful way because Naomi, in the hills of losing everything, calls her daughter-in-laws, the, the girls who just lost their husbands, who are dealing with incredible pain. She calls them to herself, and she gives these young girls the freedom to go. The freedom to go and to make something for themselves, to rebuild, to, to, to move on. And one of her daughters-in-law, um, named Orpah, hears this and leaves and sets off and goes back to rebuild her life, but not the other one. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth. Ruth looks at Naomi and, he says, Naomi and says, I know how vulnerable you are. I know how broken and how hurt you are. I know that tragedy is weighing heavy. I see you. I know that, but I am here. I am family, and I'm not going to leave you. Chapter one ends with Ruth saying, don't urge me to leave you. Don't tell me to go. Don't tell me to return. Where you go, I'm going to go. Where you sleep, I'm going to sleep. Your people, those are going to be my people. Your God, he's my God. Nothing but death is going to part us. She ends, chapter one just ends in this incredible way. And so these two women are setting out now to the city of Bethlehem, unsure of what on earth lies ahead for them. That's chapter one. Chapter two now, they arrive in Bethlehem and they're introduced to this man, this man named Boaz. Now, Boaz is an important figure here because as we're gonna see, he was part of the family, not in a weird way, but um, in this culture, this was huge. In fact, uh, if we were to look back on Genesis and in, in, um, Leviticus, or not Genesis, on Leviticus and Deuteronomy for a minute, we would see the heart of God for people who were poor, destitute, vulnerable. We see all throughout these books the way God cares for those who are broken, and and in. A part of this is this idea of a kinsman redeemer. And so we start to see this unfold. See, in Leviticus 25, I'm not going to have you turn with me here because I told you I'm going to be quick through this. In Leviticus 25, God says, look, when hard times hit, when, whether it be financial or death, when there is a situation, when someone loses everything, Leviticus, Leviticus talks about this idea of a kinsman redeemer in Leviticus 25, who will buy back the property that is being lost. A kinsman redeemer who would care for the estate, buy back the property. That's Leviticus, but how about Deuteronomy 25? Deuteronomy 25 is the same concept here, but for the woman who is widowed. In Leviticus 25, she's to be cared for, provided for, married by the kinsman redeemer. Again, this is an example of God's heart for those who are hurting, for those who are poor, for those who are vulnerable in the society. And this person in the Old Testament times, let me give you a good old Old Testament word, goel. Goel. This is what this person, this kinsman redeemer was called. It was called a Goel. We don't have Goels today, what we do, but we don't have it like this. In, in scripture, a Goel, this person had to be nearest to kin of the one who suffered tragedy, 
had to be able to purchase or buy back, had to be willing to do it, and then had to pay the price to buy it all back. That's what a kinsman redeemer did in the Old Testament. And as Naomi and Ruth, they roll into Bethlehem, they're introduced to this man named Boaz. Guess what? He is a potential Goel. And you get this sense of wonder of what if. What if this is it? What if, you know? And in chapter two, Ruth and Boaz meet and you get this strong indication Boaz is liking what he sees. There's a little chemistry there because Boaz just sees Ruth working in the field and he goes above and beyond to protect and to provide for Ruth and Naomi and offers her this great protection and harvest. And again, Boaz, is, he likes what he sees in Ruth. So you're thinking, what if? What if this could be it? And this gets us to chapter three where Naomi has this extremely, what appears to a Western eye in 2019 weird plan here, right? We, we see Naomi give Ruth this idea, this plan, bold plan where Ruth will go out to Boaz where he's working in the middle of the night. She's going to clean herself up, dress up, make sure she smells good with her anointing perfume, right? And then go where he is sleeping and uncover his feet and wait. And we talked about this last week, although this plan, that seems real strange. I mean, I didn't do that to propose to, to Candace, but um, this was the equivalent of a marriage proposal. This was the equivalent of Ruth putting herself out there on the line. She was already vulnerable, but here she becomes even more vulnerable, puts herself out on the line. And as we read, Boaz responds with a yes. Well, kind of, because he says, yes, I want that. But if we're going to do this legally, there's one relative who is closer than me, and I want to do this right, so let me go take care of this for you. Now we're caught up. All right, I told you I'd be quick. Now that gets us to chapter four. In chapter four, in this text, we are going to see now how God brings all of this, comes, brings it back together. Look with me at, at verse one. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And in this culture, the gate was more than just the entrance to a city. In this culture, the gate was the place where all business took place, right? So, so Boaz here goes to the gate because he has some official business to get done. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by and Boaz says, hey, wait a second, turn aside, friend. Slow it. I got something for you. Sit down here. You're going to want to sit down for this. And, he, and the man turned aside and sat down. Verse 2, he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, hey, sit down here too. You're going to want to hear this. So they sat down. So Boaz is in the right place, and he's getting the right people in the right place to do some business. Things are ready to go. Then, verse 3, then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab and is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, Elimelech was Naomi's husband who had recently died. So Boaz here is setting the stage, and then here we go. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in, my presence, in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know... <laughs> For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. 
You get where he's going here. So Boaz lays it out for the possible closer kinsman redeemer. And at the end of verse four, the man says, you know what, I'll do it. I'll redeem it. Well, that didn't go as planned, right? If it ended here, it'd be the biggest womp womp story of the Bible. Um, But it's not over here. Up to this point, see, Boaz was looking at the law of God in Leviticus 25, talking about the property, but that's not all. What about Deuteronomy 25? Not the property, but what about, what about the widow? So, verse 5, what about Ruth? Then Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Here is the moment of truth. Then, verse 6, the Redeemer said, I, I can't do that. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, I know this is a business situation, and I know you're supposed to keep yourself in a business-like composure in business situations, but I cannot help but just imagine Boaz as the smiles just start working up the corners of his mouth in this moment. You realize the weight of what just happened here, how God is working all of this together, and it says in verse 7, this is another one of those customs we don't do anymore, but it was a custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to affirm it, not by signing, but by taking off a sandal and giving it to another as a manner of attesting. So I'm glad we don't do this anymore, but it's the equivalent of signing. We have a business We have an official witnessed deal that just happened here. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnessing this day. I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and all that belongs to Chilion and Malon. Those are her two sons. And also Ruth. Don't forget Ruth. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, "You, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily. Listen to this blessing in Ephrathim and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give to you by this young woman. What a scene, what a blessing that was. It was done. God has taken tragedy and has poured out his blessing. So verse 13, Boaz takes his wife, and it's not only that, but they have a son. They have a son. Oh, the joy. How good is our God? Only our God could go from tragedy to this. See, Naomi was destitute in chapter one, and now, listen to verse 14. The woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. You shall be, or he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law loves you who is more to you than seven sons. Verse 15. 
has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Story begins with loss and suffering. Naomi left with nothing. Ruth left with nothing. And now Naomi has a beautiful baby boy on her lap. Only God, only God. As we take this story in, I want to ask us to look at this story on three levels. Each level, we're going to zoom out just a little bit more. And the first level that I would like to look at is this. Um, You and I are not promised a life that is free of trials. You're not promised a life where you're not going to have struggle. In fact, church... Regardless of what you've been told, the promise is actually the opposite. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this life you will face trials. They are coming. You will face them. And James even says it, expands that even more, and it says when you do face them, count it all joy because in the trials the Lord is growing you. This is how he strengthens you. This is how he blesses you is that he uses the trial to strengthen his children. You are not promised a life of ease. But as we look closely at Ruth's story, we can it's impossible for us not to see the fact that God is bigger than our trials. Our God is bigger. He does not make mistakes. He's never made a mistake. He's never been surprised. I hate surprises. Our God's never surprised. As we look at Ruth and Naomi, they went through this What they went through was horrific, painful, terrible, awful, all of the adjectives. That's what they went through. There's no getting around that. But our God had not left them. Our God's plan was still in place. He did not leave them or abandon them. And although it was so difficult, our God was not taken off guard by what they went through. He did not make a mistake. There was no whoops Because through it all, our God had this wonderful plan of redemption that was going on. They couldn't see it in its fullness. But our God had a plan. And for some of us, I really believe that this is what we need to be reminded of this morning. That your God loves you and he has not left you. You might not see how on earth our God could pull all this together. You may be in the trial right now. You might be in the thick of it, but your God is sovereign and he is good. He does not make mistakes. He is never surprised in whatever you are facing, whatever you are going to face. Church, you can trust him. He is good. He is good. Let's zoom out one more level. Um, Because Ruth, I mean, honestly, had no idea, no idea how her story and experience was going to fit into the bigger story that was just unfolding. She had totally had no idea. Um, Here we have Boaz, the son of Rahab, if you remember from last week, the foreigner. We have Boaz, um, whose mom was brought into the people of God by grace. This foreigner was shown grace in such a beautiful way. And now we have Boaz, her son, who looks at Ruth. Who better than Boaz to look at Ruth? 
And his heart is filled with compassion and kindness and love to this foreigner. I mean, who better than Boaz to truly see and to care for Ruth? And that's, it's almost like God's hand was just all over this. Before Ruth could even see it, God was moving. She had no idea, no idea how God's story was unfolding. See, Boaz and Ruth's baby boy, Obed. Let's talk about Obed. Um, just so happened that he was in the family of Judah. Um, and we read the final verses of this chapter. And I will admit, um, genealogies. When you get to these in your Bible, don't act like you're more spiritual than everyone else is. Sometimes these aren't the most riveting of studies. I get it. There's a lot of names and we fumble them and, and it, I get it. Genealogies and scriptures, I, I get it. But it is really big to know that they're there for a purpose and that when you zoom out and you see the bigger purpose of them, there's, they're powerful and there's no greater example than this. Look at this. In verse 18, you have, these are the generation of Perez who was in the line of Judah, Okay. I'm just going to blast through these. Don't judge me for the way I say these names, all right? Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, not Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, again, with Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. David. King David. The David. Let's just take in what that means for just a moment. Take in what that means, because all throughout Scripture, throughout the prophets, throughout the Gospels, we read that the Messiah was coming and that the world would be waiting for him, and he was going to come through David. He was going to come through him. In fact, in Jeremiah, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And I will rise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, execute justice and righteousness in the land. This is Jesus Christ, who is called all throughout the New Testament the Son of David. This is Jesus. As we take this in, and as we zoom out just a little bit, through this story, God was putting together a grand story to bring his Son into the world. Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, they had no idea how big their story was. No clue. They had no idea. Let's just get real practical here. They had no idea that you and I would be sitting in, a, in an auditorium in 2019 in north central San Antonio, Texas, talking about their story. How could they? They had no idea that the gospel of Matthew would begin by calling out their great-grandson. They had no idea that Jesus Christ would be the son of David, that the Messiah was coming through their, through their line. No idea that all of this was going to lead to the birth of Jesus Christ. And how could they have that? How could they know I mean, how, but God had a plan, and it was perfect, and I want to just stress this to you. You and I never fully know, we will never fully see 
all of the details in the moment and how all the things are going to work and how all of the things we go through are not chaos. I like to think about as though our lives are each kind of a five-minute clip of a really good movie. And we drop in, and, and we don't see the whole movie, but we see our five-minute clip. And we wonder, how on earth is this five-minute clip make sense? I would have done this five-minute clip way differently, having never seen the movie before. And in this moment, when we start to feel this way, we have to trust that God doesn't just see your five-minute clip, that he sees the movie. In fact, let me expand this. Your God is the writer and director of the whole movie. And I just have to ask, how foolish would it be for a movie critic to see a five-minute clip on minute 68, call up the director and tell him how he should have done things different? How, how dare you? This doesn't make sense. See, it sounds crazy because we obviously know that the writer and director would know far more than how our five-minute perspective fits. We get it on that level. But yet, how often is this exactly what we do? We see the five-minute clip and we don't trust him that he has a plan for the whole. And through Ruth, through through this story, God is preparing the world for Jesus Christ. There's no way they could have wrapped their mind around that statement. But this is Ruth's story. And speaking of Jesus here, um, we have to zoom out one more time. One more time as we consider her story, as we think back to Ruth's tragedy. So she lost it all. She was vulnerable. She was without a plan at all for the future. This is how Ruth started. And Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, he steps in and he redeems her. And as we said, in order to do that, he needed to be close of kin. He needed to be able to redeem her. He needed to be willing to redeem her. And then he needed to pay the price to redeem her. So let's zoom out here a little bit and let's think of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf in light of the story of Ruth. And in order to see this, first of all, we have to take a moment to realize how much like Ruth... I won't even use the word we, you are. How much like Ruth I am. Because we, like Ruth, had lost it all. We were vulnerable. We were without a hope for the future. In fact, Scripture says it's worse. It's that you were dead. Dead. I mean, dead. It's hard to imagine a worse condition or situation. Dead. It's hard to imagine a lower place dead. That was you. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is how scripture talks about you apart from Jesus Christ. This is your condition. In other words, God does not love you because you are good. Jesus doesn't pick you for his team because you are awesome. 
You were dead. You were destined for wrath. That was you. But God. Verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, not kind of dead, sort of dead, mostly dead, dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Jesus or in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Church, Ruth was hurting, lowly, vulnerable, without a plan, without a hope for the future, and Boaz stepped in and redeemed her. In the same way, you were dead, lowly, destined for wrath, without a hope or a plan for the future, but God, he steps in. He does not love you because you are good. He loves you because he is good. He does not pick you for his team because you are awesome. He is awesome. Church, Jesus didn't die for you because of what you can give him or do for him. He accomplished it all for you because of the love of God for you. Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer who steps in and redeems you in his grace. Jesus Christ is your Goel. And remember, in order to do this, what did Boaz have to do? First of all, he had to be close to kin to redeem. Well, that's exactly why Jesus Christ came born of a virgin. That's exactly why he became a man. Word put on flesh dwelt among us. In doing this, Jesus became our kin. He became like us. He became our brother, and he fulfills this requirement through his incarnation. Well, second, if you remember, Boaz also needed to be able to redeem. Church, Jesus is the only one who is able to redeem the only one. Why is he able? Because he lived a sinless life, because he died for our sin, and because he conquered death. Only the one who knew no sin could take on your sin. Only the one who is perfectly righteous can give you his righteousness. Only the one who had conquered death could give you resurrection. Only the resurrection and the life can give you resurrection and life. Only he is able to do this. The sinless Savior who lived, who died, who rose from the dead, he is able, church, to redeem. And that's not all, because what else? He had to be willing. He had to be willing to redeem. And I think that this perhaps is the most neglected part of the gospel. When we think about the gospel, I think if there was ever a part that was neglected the most, it might be this, that the father did not send his son unwillingly to do the work. His life was not taken. This was not cosmic child abuse. Maybe, again, the most forgotten part of the gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life for you. His life was not taken. It was freely given. Jesus was not only able to redeem you, 
But church, Jesus was willing to redeem you. And lastly, we, we saw that Boaz needed to then pay the price to redeem. Can I just remind you that Jesus Christ paid the price for your redemption. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. This, was our, this is our Savior, our Redeemer. Jesus Christ is our kinsman Redeemer, our Goel. Ruth's story is a wonderful foretaste of the gospel through Jesus Christ. A foretaste of the work of Jesus on your behalf. That Jesus came, that Jesus was able, that Jesus was willing, and that Jesus paid the price to redeem you. And I want to say this just as we close. I want you to hear this. I think this is really important that we hear this. I don't know who you are or what you're facing or how you are feeling in this moment. I I don't know. Um, But for those of you in Christ, for those who have been redeemed, um, Jesus Christ not only paid the price for your redemption, but he doesn't have buyer's remorse. He does not regret his purchase. Let me push this further. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly who he was redeeming. He did not die for a vague idea of possible redemption for you. He died for your redemption, and it was complete and fully accomplished through his work. He knew exactly who he was redeeming, and he gave his life to pay for your redemption. Would you bow your head with me, and let's come to the Lord in prayer. Lord, there is really nothing else for us to do in this moment other than to come into your presence along with our brothers and sisters and first just say thank you. We are unworthy. We were dead. We, are, we were broken. We were vulnerable. We did not have a hope. We did not have a future. But God, rich in mercy, stepped in. Your word says that you demonstrated your great love for us, that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And I just pray that in this moment, after hearing the truth of the gospel, the truth of our kinsman redeemer through Jesus Christ, I I just pray that right now, no matter who we are, where we're from, what our morning, what our week, what our year, what our life has looked like up to this moment, I pray that you just apply the gospel now to our hearts and our minds. That we would respond. That we would respond to the gospel in faith believing in the work that you have accomplished. That we would respond in confession of our sin. And that we would respond in just gratitude for the work that you have done on our behalf. And if there is anyone here, Lord, who has never responded to the gospel, I pray that through your spirit you would work and move and that we 
they would join with the saints as we respond together to what Jesus has done. Lord, we never outgrow the good news of the gospel. We never graduate from it. We never need anything deeper, anything more. Draw us back to the glory and the wonder of the redemption that we have through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, and in these next moments, we respond. We lift our voices and we sing about the redemption that we have through Jesus Christ. Would you be honored and glorified through our song? In Jesus' name, amen.